Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the Season 3, Part 17 and 18 archives, the work that I previously done on this finale. So we're about to jump right into that, but uh, just a note to all listeners, of course, this is officially the final episode of Lost in Twin Peaks. We've reached the end of Twin Peaks thus far, uh, as far as we know. You may be listening to this in a future date, maybe more came out, we don't know. But as of 2023, when I'm releasing to this to the public, and it was all recorded back even earlier, almost five years earlier in 2018, uh, you know, there's... Still a prospect of Twin Peaks, more Twin Peaks in the future, but uh, maybe a little unlikely. I'll let you decide. But let's get on with what I've said previously about these two episodes forming the finale together. From my previous work on the show, here is what I wrote the night on 2017 when this originally aired. In light of all these open-ended melodramas and mysteries, the action-packed conclusion of the show's primary arc feels all the more consciously absurd. I've talked a lot about Lynch in this review, and not at all about Frost, which is interesting for a few reasons. I suspect I'll have the opportunity to dig deeper into his contribution on a future occasion. It's much easier to sense Frost's touch in the first half of The Past Dictates the Future than in the the subsequent 90 minutes. The knowingly wacky tone, the coming together of various characters and plot threads, the fruition of elements seeded long ago, the fun sense of daring do and adventure, clever conceits like Cooper calling the station while the other Cooper is there, or Lucy being the one to shoot the doppelganger. The way these colorful personality types intersect and pay off. It's cartoonish to begin with, but the radical contrast with subsequent material further highlights that quality. Frost obviously had a huge hand in shaping the flow and many details of this series, right up through the conclusion of the central thread, but I don't yet feel comfortable enough teasing out his contribution to the rest which feels so overtly Lynchian from this point forward that it's more like the material he wrote with Barry Gifford than any of his previous work with Frost. The question of how the Lynch-Frost collaboration on The Return follows from their more tug-of-war relationship on the original series requires more digging. For now, it's enough to note that Lynch's treatment of the Cooper-Doppelganger storyline commits so fully to the outrageousness of the material that it both affectionately honors Twin Peaks' plotty side and maybe mocks it a little bit, too. Indeed, I feel as if the finale answers my long-simmering question, how can we make the literal division of Coopers both dramatically compelling and psychologically incisive by essentially shrugging off that question and dispensing with the denouement quickly in order to move on to other matters? What follows still draws upon the idea of a divided Cooper, but in a more subtle, abstract manner, as if the return decided to tell two stories, one which could be stretched over 17 hours without having to lead anywhere profound, and another which could materialize closer to the end to deliver a weightier riff on the same themes, without attempting to sustain a weekly story. This sounds critical, but I can't say I mind. Besides, I've always relished the push and pull of the old Twin Peaks, and occasionally missed that tension in the return, so it's nice to see it re-emerge in the end. I'm mostly pleased and surprised that the show went in the directions I hoped it would, indeed in surprisingly specific ways. I hoped the series would ultimately point the viewers back to Firewalk with me, and it did that notion one better. I hoped it would play around with time and alternate realities in a thematically compelling way, less in literal quantum leap sci-fi form than metaphorical experimentation. It sure did. I kept yearning for a Mulholland Drive-esque time-space identity-bending twist, and as already discussed, the return followed suit with every other late Lynch screenplay. Weirdly, I even wondered, from early on in the production, 
if Lara would reappear as another character, probably a working-class, middle-aged woman far from Twin Peaks, who had no knowledge of the town or her other identity when Cooper discovered her. This instinct was so on the nose that I'm honestly wondering if I've just forgotten that some gossip leaked years ago and was hinted to me. Perhaps it was just an inevitable conclusion when trying to figure out how a dead, essentially resolved character could re-enter the narrative. I did have one thing spoiled for me, long after I already suspected that Lara was going to come back. The very ending of the series. Yeah, that's right. The vaguely whispered TMZ spoiler that you may have heard about and avoided? It was literally the final scene of The Return. Here, you can safely read it yourself now, and I link the piece. Obviously, I wish I'd never read that but part of me still suspects that Lynch knew what he was doing that night, despite associates' assertions that the location just got out of hand and they were unable to properly deal with the size and proximity of the crowd watching and filming that day's shoot. Okay, so I knew Cooper and, quote, Laura, or not Laura, as the credits themselves stress, would walk up to the Palmer house and that she was going to scream at one point, but I didn't know why, and... More importantly, even after watching, I still don't really know why. This leak that Lynch essentially enabled merely emphasizes what we already knew was the core idea of Twin Peaks, Cooper striving to help Laura beyond her death, with the town as a bridge between them. But he can't, and it isn't. The conclusion produces so many mysteries that it can't be spoiled even by watching. Lynch may view this as the ultimate spoiler, not something that is learned ahead of time, but something that is learned concretely at all. As Cooper's own failures tell us, the harder we try to knock at the door, the more certainly we'll be shut out. The house whose windows darken, as if to emphasize that he's forbidden from treading its doorstep, closes the return off with an emphatic no. The silent whisper that follows has a taunting feel, traumatic as much for its unreachability as for what Cooper's expression leads us to dread. This is it. This is how the story ends, or rather doesn't end, can never end, with Cooper learning something we can't share, and which perhaps even he doesn't understand. Of course, this isn't actually how the story ends. It ends, to the extent an eternal story can ever end, with Laura receiving her angel in the Red Room, Cooper by her side, smiling softly with generosity, but not necessarily sharing her sight. You get there the same way you always got there, by submitting to Laura's vision and realizing that this will take you further than Cooper ever can go, to places you may not want to reach, but which are necessary routes to the heart of Twin Peaks. Cooper can't save Laura, or any of us, or even himself, except at his own expense, from the darkness in the woods. But there is something beyond that darkness. And then there was a time when I cried because I was so happy, because I saw what it was, and it was so beautiful. I was awake. And that last quote is from an interview David Lynch did with the uh, actors who play the Palmer family in which they play their characters. Uh, it's on the missing uh, or on the entire mystery Blu-ray. And of course, the one speaking those lines uh, is Cheryl Lee is Laura Palmer. Uh, in 2017, shortly after writing this review, I appeared as a guest on the podcast Beyond the Filter. So here is a uh, uh substantial slice of our conversation, four or five minutes, uh, I think worth dipping into here. Well, and it has the same sort of structure at the end where it turns very dark at the end. And like, yes, yep. watching, watching the, um, you know, the series again, I just finished the last few episodes last night. 
And I think when I was watching the first time through um, 17 and 18, I kind of like, I, you know, you're, you, you were just happy that Cooper is like back, even though all this other weird stuff is happening. So I think I was kind of still going with Cooper and following him mm-hmm. until that scene where he kind of just starts wandering around with the gun, like, and in the, in the, um, the Judy's yeah. uh, diner and he's just acting really weird and then going back and watching it again i noticed that his character just for that whole episode yeah is is off and and a lot more kind of a jerk and like um like it started to make me see sort of you know the, i really sort of got to understand what the overall direction mm. of the series was outside of like Cooper, um, you know, wanting to follow Cooper and being really on his side. But the thing that I really liked about your analysis of the last two episodes is that you put Cooper front and center, which, of course, you know, it's it's hard to do anything else. But I think that the character for me um, and and I I feel like this has been confirmed from watching through the series again. And Mm -hmm. there are still things that I don't understand. I think like. I don't want to. I don't feel comfortable saying that the entire series is like Cooper's dream, but mm-hmm. it's something. It's something like that. <laughs> um, there's there's an element of that that is a very very huge and central part of 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 Twin Peaks, and like Cooper's character is the kind of central character, and it's yes, it's hard to ignore that. Yeah, it's it's really it's interesting. They just came out with the cover art today for the third season Blu-ray, which interestingly, I guess the return was just the Showtime marketing gimmick like David Lynch doesn't call it that. So it's like never going to be called that again. <laughs> Apparently, it's just Twin Peaks season three. But the cover art is, um, you know, obviously Cooper one half. It's it's sort of like I don't know if you, you do you have the entire mystery Blu-ray for Twin Peaks. No, it's a it's a picture of Laura's portrait, but there's like a hole in the cover and you can see the corpse wrapped in plastic underneath. It's like Mm. splintered and fragmented. So this is a sort of a similar idea. It's Cooper, but one half of the it's sort of divided down the middle by a very sharp zigzag. And one side is Mr. C and the other side is Cooper slash Dougie. You know, the good the good Cooper. And uh, so it's interesting, like. Well, that's a there's a whole other question we could sort of delve into, and, and maybe we will later. But of how this relates to what Firewalk Me does with Twin Peaks and what the original series is pitched as, blah 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 blah. But I think it's, I think the return is definitely Cooper's struggle and his story. And I think what I'm sort of struggling with now is the question of does was this necessary in some way i think i no matter what i i love this series for being new lynch material and just doing all these interesting things and so it's already a success for me on that front but i've also got sort of a vested interest in twin peaks as a whole as a singular kind of work with a unusual um approach but that you know up till now it took you from the pilot through firewalk with me so my question that I'm I'm intrigued to dig into over the next few months or even the next year is this is Cooper's story. What does it tell us about him 
that maybe we couldn't already deduce from the season two finale, um, what new does it sort of, what new material does it sort of add to that? And I feel like there are probably some things. I'm, I'm sort of on the fence right now as as to mm. what I think those are and how it works. I have a feeling that if the return is an essential new piece of Twin Peaks, it's centered around the Dougie material somehow. And around the same time, I recorded an episode for the Discourse Collective as their guest. Uh, they also had Will Meneker of Chapel Trap House on to discuss the season as a whole. But I mean, like, okay, yeah, like, there's this, it's just Judy that gets dropped on us. Like, if, if I was to, like, actually try to figure out, like, what, you know, who or what is Judy as this, like, ultimate malevolent force in the world, I, you know, like, like, there's the people saying, like, it inhabits Laura's mother. I don't know. It could, could be. The Something closest thing I can get to based on, like, contextual clues, and I'm not even saying, like, it's it's even worthwhile to try to figure this out, the, the fucking, like, the frog moth that crawls in that little girl's mouth at the very end of episode eight, that that's Judy, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't no, matter, would... though. <laughs> like, it's, well, that's yeah. an interesting connection, though, because a lot of people, and I I kind of lean this way, kind of think the girl might be Sarah. Yeah. Girl. Like, you, you sort of... Now, now David Lynch is back to blaming women for everything. He is a misogynist. God, it's all <laughs> well, Laura's mother's blaming, fault and not her dad. Blaming Richard Feynman actually for all of this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know the jumping man, the guy with the the person with the white nose that jumps around for like two seconds in Firewalk with me. That there's that shot in the Return, and Sarah's face is like stretched over it for a second. But it's like Sarah's face is superimposed on him in that scene and then later and then when there's a scene the, in 15 where she like eats the guy in the bar yeah and there's a no there's like a white sort of no like a, a little nose kind of juts out when she does that and then oh, if you that. look at if you look at the bug that crawls in the girl's mouth it has a long no pointy nose and it and it literally jumps up onto her windowsill with like the frog legs so there's something going on with the jumping guy. I don't know if he or she or whatever has anything to do with Judy, but... But, I mean, like, this bug creature and this girl, and we know there's some sort of genealogy from the atomic bomb to, like, Twin Peaks and, and Laura's family. Um, but what I think is interesting is, like, the original series is very much, like, Laura is the victim of abuse from her father. And that's, like, the father is doing this. But now, in this new version, it's not just her it's not just Leland who's to blame for this like horrible situation like her mother gets wrapped in and deranged by it and she's now like either part of the the, the thing that has killed Laura or somehow been consumed by it because she's got this weird like the black smoke thing that's tied to the lodge somehow um like there's a lot well Sarah is a character who um you know is like you know never presented as like fully stable but especially again in firewalk with me is a character who is complicit in the abuse of her daughter basically yeah and and like being more explicit about that in the new season was pretty interesting because it's like if if judy is this like supernatural force that's the most evil thing imaginable that's like the enemy of good created out of an atomic bomb um then this sort of idea that it's been encapsulated inside of Laura's mom and like that that is where pure evil lies <laughs> that's... I don't know though I don't know that it's pure evil though 
I think it's more ambiguous than that. A few weeks after that, I published a piece on the Wonders in the Dark TV countdown on this website where Twin Peaks was voted number two TV show. So I wrote about it as a TV show, surveying all three seasons, talking about Firewalk with me a little because you have to to address the show, but keeping it sort of to the side and focusing on it as a TV phenomenon. So here's a part of that excerpt that uh, focuses on some of the stuff we see in part 17 and 18. Diane, too, has many incarnations, a blonde tulpa who smokes and spits fuck yous with panache, while ultimately struggling against her own manipulation, the imprisoned and blinded Nato, an untroubled red-wigged vision in a bathrobe, and the more uncomfortable character of Part 18. Unlike Cooper, however, we don't have an official version to compare to these variations. Diane is all fragments, and more than anyone else in the third season, she represents the spirit of what we could once call Late Lynch. Fire Walk With Me, or perhaps his last two episodes of Twin Peaks, through Inland Empire. Of course, that looks more like a middle period at this point. These were the films that frequently featured female protagonists, told stories increasingly splintered and circular, and were edited in impressionistic, fluid fashion by Mary Sweeney. As a kind of embodiment of this spirit, displaced within the colder world of season three, Diane may be less grounded, I'm not me, she says, than characters like Gordon, Albert Rosenfield, Miguel Ferrer, or Tammy Preston, Christabel. But somehow she feels the most alive, the most in touch with the raw emotion that pulses through Firewalk with me, and the most electric episodes of the old Twin Peaks. Cooper, on the other hand, is searching, knowing who he is on some fundamental level, but perpetually distanced from that identity, ever in pursuit of the essence just out of reach. In the world of season three, and perhaps as an extension of her original role on the show, Diane is forced into the role of planet circling around Cooper's son. Then, following the most powerfully uncomfortable sex scene in Lynch's work, an oeuvre filled with powerfully uncomfortable sex scenes, she eventually breaks away from this orbit, becoming a Linda who can pursue her own narrative. In the Lynchverse, at least, these various social roles and relationships to consciousness are heavily gendered. With that in mind, it's interesting that Bob, displaced into a cartoonish bubble and literally punched to death with a green glove, is eclipsed by the more ambiguous feminine negative energy of Jawaday Judy, whom many have conflated, not unconvincingly, with the references to the mother and the experiment that we see in the atomic cloud and the glass box. Laura's mother also exists ominously on the periphery of the narrative, leading to speculation that she is, or is possessed by, Judy. Like Audrey, there is no place for her in the main storyline, nor within a minor arc subservient to the main story. Sarah can't be contained any more than the experiment, and in her final scene, she furiously attacks Laura's portrait, smashing the glass but unable to tear the picture itself. This is right before Laura disappears. If Firewalk With Me allowed Lynch to break free of masculine tropes embedded in the detective narrative he had chosen, his return to TV sees him close himself within this framework once again, this time with a deep, abiding awareness of what lies beyond. Like Cooper, though, he can't get there from here. So that was my first chance to uh, address Twin Peaks, the return as a whole, after writing about uh, episodes week to week and so forth. So interesting uh, opportunity there, and I think striking on some of the themes I would return to and develop uh, or continue to develop later. Uh, also in 2017, sometime I guess around the fall, I had the conversation with Lindsay Stamhuis on 25 Years Later. Actually, you know what? Yeah, 2017. Okay, so I guess it... Oh, right, it was shortly after the series finished. Um, we would later have a conversation on parts five through eight, but this was soon after the series. So uh, she 
excerpted parts of what we talked about uh, on the controversial finale ending. I said, people complain about the ending like it ruins everything, but you still enjoyed all of those hours before. I think that's true here too. And I think they quite consciously did that with a lot of these little stories. You don't get an ending. You don't get an ending with Becky. You get a very hazy one with Steven. You don't get any ending with Red. You almost didn't. don't get a story. You just get these little sketches, these little portraits. And I think they made that work. Some of it was a little frustrating. I would have liked to know more of what happened with the whole extended Briggs clan, which I guess includes Red and Steven. And then in a later part of the conversation, I said, but there's something really intriguing about it, and it creates a sort of yearning, this longing, which is very much the spirit of the older show. And it's funny, in the older show, I think it was more around Lara. It was like, you want to know what's going on with this girl. Why was she so troubled? And meanwhile, you're getting more down-to-earth stories with all the other characters, an easy-to-understand soap opera uh, melodrama with them. With the return, though, it was almost the opposite. The central storyline with Cooper, you did get a conclusion early in Part 17 to that story. That was closed off. But all these little subplots surrounding it, those were all very open and mysterious, and you felt like you were only getting wisps and glimpses of it. So yeah, to get to the question about Laura and the ending, I'll have to wrestle with it a little, and I'll just say coming out for the first time, it it didn't feel I didn't feel like it undercut Firewalk me. I just felt like it was sort of an addition to it. Now, since we're discussing at this point season three as a whole, having reached the end of it, uh, I did also have an essay where I compare Twin Peaks Firewalk with me and Twin Peaks The Return. So I'm going to read the intro of that because it ties directly into this finale and uh, what we see here. Sixteen and a half episodes into Showtime's revival of Twin Peaks, FBI agent Dale Cooper, Kyle McLaughlin, the unquestioned if multifaceted hero of this series, as well as the old one, two seasons, 1990-91, is speaking to a character who never appeared in the old show, yet whose familiarity is taken for granted. Portrayed by a monstrous, steam-spewing machine, and articulated by voice actor Nathan Frizzell, yet visualized in flashback as none other than late pop legend David Bowie, this Philip Jeffries is sending Cooper back to a particular date, February 23, 1989. Cooper's one-armed companion, Al Strobel Jr., intones electricity, a curious motif for anyone who came to this decades-delayed third season after close study of seasons one and two. In the old series, owls, not electrical currents, were the harbingers of spiritual energy between two worlds. And then our protagonist closes his eyes as the camera pushes toward him, a whooshing sound filling the soundtrack before we realize it belongs to a ceiling fan. Another sound emerges, a motorcycle, and we are faced with perhaps the most important, if infrequently glimpsed, location in this two-part finale, perhaps in the whole series. It is, we have previously been told in parts 2 and 12, the Palmer family household, even though it's a distinctly different house than the one used in the classic first and second season. And then we see actors, Cheryl Lee, Ray Wise, and James Marshall, as Laura and Leland Palmer and James Hurley, respectively. All have been glimpsed in earlier parts of The Return, but... Now they look much younger, much younger than CGI or makeup could achieve. What's going on here? This whole passage, the Bowie-initiated time travel, the view of a tall, foreboding Palmer house ascending from a sidewalk, the actors who leapt back in time a quarter century, represents not only a return to the winter of 89, it is a return to Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the controversial 1992 spin-off film that was for years left out of many discussions of Twin Peaks, often treated as an odd footnote at best and an irrelevant cast-off at worst. 
This crucial sequence of the third season, as Lynch and co-creator Mark Frost call it, though Showtime's designation The Return remains catchy and telling in its own right, begins with overt references to Lynch's one-time bete noir and concludes with direct immersion into that very work. For most of the next five minutes, David Lynch, who directed only six episodes of the first two seasons, but all of the third season as well as Firewalk With Me, will play footage from his own movie, with color and score extracted, and some new shots along with a few previously unused old ones sprinkled throughout. Having promised or warned viewers before the season's May premiere that his prequel film would be very important to the new work, Lynch certainly delivers. And yet this time, his Firewalk With Me ideas are filtered through Frost's own strong vision, rather than reinforced by Robert Engels, co-writer of the film, who came closer to Lynch's own sensibility and was generally more deferential towards him. Frost was not only not involved at all with the film, but now he's actually been able to reinterpret its motifs in collaboration with Lynch. How does this impact the prequel project's legacy as well as the new material? And then from there I have a long piece looking at specific motifs, you know, motif after motif after motif that's introduced in Firewalk with me and featured in season three. So you can check out that whole essay link below, but I thought that whole intro was worth reading because, again, it's not just about season three as a whole now that it's concluded, but specifically part 17 and 18, or really part 17 specifically. So that essay was published on November 10th, uh, 2018. And soon after that, I uh, I think a year later, actually, I had a Twin Peaks reflection section for my Patreon podcast where I was comparing uh, episodes or storylines, rather, of the uh, original season to or original two seasons, the 1990 material and Firewalk with me and uh, comparing it to episodes of The Return to David Lynch films to other, you know, Twin Peaks spinoffs and things like that. So in this case, I compared uh, Audrey at One-Eyed Jacks, that storyline from season two, to part 18 as a whole. And uh, I'll play the full section released on Patreon on April 28th, 2020. The storyline I want to discuss this episode is Audrey at One-Eyed Jacks. This plays an important role in episode eight because... This is when Audrey uh, finds out who the owner of One-Eyed Jacks is. It's her father. He comes in, and he's kind of crawling around on the bed, and she covers her face with a mask. It's this tense sequence, beautifully directed by Lynch, with this kind of floating steady cam, uh, I believe, look to it that I don't think has been used on the show up to this point. You don't see that kind of technique in episode one. It's more just uh, static camera and occasionally dollies, but nothing kind of this fluid and woozy. And then we have another couple scenes later in the episode where she talks to Blackie and she tries to play it tough. And we start to get the sense that Audrey is trapped here. And then finally, at the end, she prays to Cooper. Very memorable scene. Audrey's prayer It even inspired a musical motif, which I think developed into uh, questions in a world of blue and firewalk with me. So give a quick summary of the storyline. This early season two storyline with the most screen time of any involves Audrey's undercover investigation of her father's bordello, which turns into a drugged up kidnapping from which Cooper must rescue her. It's interesting to call it an early season two storyline. It actually begins in season one. But the reason I'm emphasizing that is, as I said, it has the most screen time of any season two storyline. So from episode eight, to like episode 12, I once... Um, broke this down just in terms of when I was making my first journey videos, I needed to kind of know 
what were the different subplots, where were the scenes in the different episodes so I could pull them up when I needed them and kind of organize the material. And I discovered, wow, there's way more attention paid to Audrey at uh, the Bordello than, than the Laura investigation at this point. It really is the dominant uh, thread of these set of episodes. The characters involved in this story are Cooper, Harry, Ben, Audrey, Hawk, Hank, Jean, Blackie, Emery, and Nancy. And I suppose tangentially Renette, since we see her uh, name in Emery's book. Uh, and I would also mention Jenny, the girl from the perfume counter and various uh, prostitutes at the bordello, including the first new girl who uh, Ben approaches in episode two, and also the cowgirl person in the uniform, who I think is different from the new girl. They look a little similar, but there's an ice bucket girl. You know, they've got these characters sort of milling about and the guards, too, that are killed or bound and gagged in the uh, rescue episode, too. And One-Eyed Jacks will continue after this, but at that point it will have uh, sort of a different location. And actually, I should say, the new girl, the first new girl um, who I mentioned, she initially, like that scene where Ben and Jerry go to One-Eyed Jacks is not really part of this plot line, other than just establishing the location. But... Um, you know, she be, she enters, she she actually escorts Audrey in when Audrey's the new girl, so sort of a passing of the torch there, I guess. The episodes that this lasts are episodes 1 through 14, so this really is a consistent through line through the whole first half of the series, and then it's gone. Uh, the One-Eyed Jack stuff after that is pretty different, but it starts off arguably with Audrey uh, actually in episode one, telling Cooper that, uh, you know, Laura worked at the perfume counter because that sets in motion discovering where else Laura worked and everything like that. But episode two is when it really gets going because she passes a note under Cooper's door that says Jack with one eye. And then from there, she begins her investigation. She tells Donna about it. She kind of hints at Cooper that she's getting a job. She goes to the perfume counter. She hides in the closet. She finds out about Jack's. And then episode six is where it really gets swingy in earnest, where she actually goes to one-eyed Jack's. And from there on, you know, she interviews with Blackie. She ties the cherry stem and all that. A lot of memorable moments are tied to this plot line. And I would fold Audrey at the perfume counter into this plot line as well. Episode six is her dominant episode where she will never have... It's really the peak of Audrey in all seasons of Twin Peaks. That uh, last second-to-last episode in season one, her total high point, hiding in the closet, tying the cherry stem, uh, all of that. Uh, her scene with Cooper on the bed where she's talking to him in the beginning. It just all that stuff is great. Uh, the connection I want to draw is to part 18 with Cooper's rescue of Carrie. I put that in quotes because who knows exactly what's going on there. I think that's important because ultimately where Audrey's storyline at One-Eyed Jacks goes is that it becomes an opportunity for Cooper to rescue a damsel in distress. And that's an interesting reversal because in season one, it's her storyline. It's her strong point. She is out there, you know, making this investigation happen herself totally on her own. And then as season two kind of drifts along, she suddenly becomes more and more helpless. Uh, episode nine, where she wraps the cord around Emery's neck and forces him to tell her that her dad owns the business and that Laura uh, worked there, is kind of her last peak moment. After that, whenever we see her, she's like slumped over, drugged up, kind of babbling. Jean is, you know, uh, sitting with her on the chair and 
feeding her chocolates or caramels or whatever, and she's just passed out. And Cooper comes and saves her like a fairy tale princess or whatever. And it's, you know, uh, it works. It's a fu- it functions well as its own storyline, but it's a little disappointing to see Audrey kind of brought to this because she's such a dynamic character before that. And I think it kind of puts a permanent reset on her character. Uh, I think they were using this storyline to set her up as a lover for Cooper, and then obviously that didn't happen. Kyle MacLachlan nixed it. So the outcome is ultimately this rescue. And that brings us back to part 18, where Cooper goes all the way down to Odessa, Texas. He's wandering around. He finds the diner, Judy's diner, and he gets advice for where uh, the other waitress lives. And sure enough, it's Carrie slash Laura, you know, this character who doesn't, she's got her own life going and she goes off with him and uh, brings her to the Palmer house. And only in the final seconds does she seem to kind of recognize something there and respond. But, you know, the overall, just the overall kind of uh, pattern with Cooper throughout the series, uh, particularly after season one, I think season one, he's more of a straightforward heroic investigator. We don't get as much sort of pathos or biography on his part. But certainly in season two, it's a major thrust of Mark Frost's writing to give Cooper this tragic backstory and have him be this kind of flawed figure who's always trying to, trying and failing to rescue women from Caroline to Annie, um, maybe in some sense to Audrey, although they didn't end up taking it as much in that direction. Certainly Laura, uh, you know, she becomes kind of the, the disembodied version of this. And then finally with uh, Carrie in, and and maybe Diane in some way. Well, Diane is a little different because Diane is somebody he kind of sees as his companion to travel along with him in this journey. And in a sense, she probably leaves him because she's so alienated by the single-minded quest that she's just supposed to be a, a... a companion to, you know, but you see this, this pattern repeat there. So that was the episode I thought to connect it to another Cooper rescue, in this case, more of a botched one. The one in season two is more successful, although it is interesting. Once they get her into um, the book house, he realizes that John was holding her there and he realizes that his uh, pursuit of Audrey or, or re- that he realizes his, um, you know, going with the Bookhouse Boys on that mission against FBI guidelines in the end of season one it may have some way have trapped Audrey in this situation. It's a little bit of a stretch because they were going to try to get Jock anyways and some other means, but who knows. Several years later in 2020 for Journey Through Twin Peaks, Chapter 36, The Return, I uh, had a section, the two-sided finale, talking about Part 17 and 18, the interesting contrast they create. Although Part 17 appears more conventional, both of these episodes are fairly avant-garde, offering enormous twists to the exciting Twin Peaks mythos. Part 17's final intervention into the preceding material may be even more radical than Part 18's. It is 18, however, even more than Part 8, which brings the full body of season three most in line with Lynch's work since the 90s. Richard. Linda. Carrie Page. Carrie Page. Is Sarah Palmer here? Who? What is your name? Alice. Alice Tremond. At the end of this enchanted season, 
viewers emerged in a daze, wondering what to make of it all. As TV, the new Twin Peaks is a triumph, offering visions and sensations almost impossible to find elsewhere in the medium. As Lynch work, the new Twin Peaks is a bonanza of new material, our first new gift in over a decade, adding up to almost the entire runtime of his prior feature work combined. I never dreamed that I'd meet somebody like you. As Twin Peaks, the new Twin Peaks is a complicated, fascinating mystery box, and it's possible we still haven't received the key to open it. No. Also in 2020, I was a guest on Twin Peaks Unwrapped for their fifth anniversary show, where we talked about the idea of more Twin Peaks. Now, this is a topic I've discussed many times, certainly on my own Twin Peaks conversation. So this can sort of serve as a smaller kernel sample of that type of conversation. I think there might be something else. I really do. I don't feel like it's over yet. Will it be a movie or? I did not feel that way after season, before season three, which maybe means it's not going to happen. <laughs> But I did not think there would ever be a third season. And after the third season, pretty much from the finale, I've thought some just feels like there's more. Something hasn't been like kind of, you know, they don't tie things up, but even something hasn't been like followed up on yet. Yeah. With Carrie and Richard, I think that's what it would be. And finally, for fun, we did a uh, ranking of the different episodes in season three on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, they invited me on to do a sort of a March Madness bracket type of thing for season three. And uh, here's the part where we are deciding uh, between uh, part 18 versus part 11. And, and somehow part eight had already been knocked out of contention. Don't ask how. So uh, here's where we kind of highlight, uh, where I highlight what it is about part 18 that I think is so uh, rich and fascinating. I want to make it fun till the end. <laughs> but, and I feel like Josh could surprise us, but I, I just to be on, and I love part 11. It is, it's a top five episode for me. I think 14, 11, five, eight, and 18 are my top five episodes, but it's got to be part 18. All um, right. And we haven't talked at all about the Diane stuff either. I think obviously that sex scene with her is super disturbing. Mm. Um, and, and it's, I think, and I haven't totally, I haven't wrapped my head around a lot of the stuff in part 18 yet, three years later. Uh, a lot of the stuff with like the Richard and Linda idea and this idea that they're, are, are they summoning Judy? Like what does Judy have yeah. to do with all this, the Judy diner and all that? There's so much more to pick apart here. I think even just judging it as a piece of filmmaking or drama, it's very effective uh, in a totally different way than part eight like almost opposite. They're, they're kind of like two different visions of digital cinema. Part eight, using digital to kind of create all these worlds. And then part 18, almost using digital to strip it down. Mm. You know? and I find, so I find that really fascinating. And uh, there's just so much going on there. So yeah, it is part 18, but uh, part 11 is, is uh, worthy of making it. You know, so, not, not over part eight, in my opinion, yeah. but it's certainly worthy of getting to some sort of last contention. What year is this? 
Now we reach the point where I'm going to sample material that often references all of season three. Uh, I'll try to pick examples that have particular pertinence to the season three finale, but these are just kind of dips into a much larger pool. So in each case, uh, please check out the full um, series or, you know, uh, category or whatever you want to call it that uh, these examples are a part of. So to start with, we have my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast where I compared uh, films to Twin Peaks. And here's an excerpt from Back to the Future Part 2, the episode where I talked about that particular sequel and how it revisits the earlier film in a way that relates very much to Twin Peaks, specifically Part 17. The Back to the Future Part 2 episode was initially released for patrons on October 28th, 2020, and uh, later... Uh, almost exactly a year later, on October 19th, 2021, it was released to the uh, public. Or actually, no, sorry, October 20th, 2022, it was released uh, for my uh, public Twin Peaks cinema feed. Here again is a, is where we kind of see that parallel with this idea of like an alternate 1985 type thing where they're in the same place, but it's somehow different. And they go to the house and Laura's mother doesn't live there. He's totally baffled, and, uh, you know, the film ends with this sense of, like, where in time are they? <laughs> we don't even know. If there's more Twin Peaks, I would love to see it go in that direction of exploring that question in, you know, a very Lynchian fashion where it doesn't get quite as literal as Back to the Future Part Two. But this whole idea of restaging sequences, starting where we left off, and then even recasting, this is something we see maybe more in the film Firewalk With Me, where the character of Donna is played by a different actress. Uh, in Back to the Future Part Two, you know, we have uh, the actors who played Marty's girlfriend not coming back, so they reshoot all the sequences with this with this other actress with Elizabeth Shue. Um, so there's and everyone just acts like, yeah, of course, this is the person who was there all along. What are you talking about? So it's kind of a funny similar dynamic there. Actors dressed up to kind of replicate their former roles. So you know you have Cheryl Lee 25 years later wearing her costume as Laura and Firewalk with Me. They even made her up to look younger. Uh, in this film, Back to the Future Part Two, they're making up the characters to look older. But all this kind of playing with time and having the actors play multiple versions of themselves. And also, this is important, I think, retconning the meaning and purpose of what we originally saw. So at the end of Back to the Future, supposedly they say, I find it a little hard to believe that they didn't think a sequel would be in the offing. But they say, oh, no, it was just a one-off. That was just a gag ending. Like, haha, now they're going off to the future. Imagine what that'll be like. And then, of course, it was very popular. They made the sequel, and they actually add some little subtle details where uh, Doc Brown kind of pauses when Marty says, well, how am I doing? Am I rich? Am I successful? And he's kind of like, oh, should I tell him? That was something they didn't have in the original because it wasn't going to play out like that. But when they decided that, you know, his family would be dysfunctional in the future and they came up with the whole plot for it, at that point, they kind of change it. And that's similar to a lot of the stuff that goes on, again, really particularly part 17 and 18 of season three, where suddenly it's all about this this Judy Jawaday spiritual force that they've been looking for all along and kind of, again, retconning it to, to make it mean this new thing. So make sure you check out the many other films I covered on that podcast as well. There's a public uh, podcast feed that this particular episode was a part of, and then also some Patreon episodes that I never released to the public. So lots of material there. 
In addition, I already mentioned how I would do Twin Peaks Reflections, comparing Season 3 episodes to storylines from the original series. Uh, Here's another clip, this one uh, using Part 17, and comparing it or connecting it with the One-Armed Man storyline of the original series. So for the storyline, the One-Armed Man, the reason now for this episode is it's his last appearance on the series. Uh, then he comes back for Firewalk with me, and again in season three. So not last of the total series, but last of the original series. So the one-armed man is named Philip Gerard. If you're talking about the uh, shoe salesman you see day to day in the real world, and his name is Mike. If you're talking about the spirit who sometimes inhabits Philip Gerard, and uh, is if Gerard being the conduit, and it, the way it's talked about him cutting off his arm so he could be closer to God and get rid of his connection to the evil Bob who he used to run around committing crimes with. It's always sort of ambiguous that the spirit talks about it like the spirit cut off the spirit arm, not the physical arm of Gerard, but Gerard is missing an arm. He says he lost it in a car accident. So it's like, how do those two concepts relate? You can kind of try to wrap your head around it. A quick summary of this storyline would be Cooper's dream and Hawk's suspicion coalesce around a mild-mannered shoe salesman whose shadow side will lead them into the heart of the spirit world and the hunt for Killer Bob. I think I've discussed the character as a character before. The storyline is a little different. It's like an evolution of what they know about this character or where it it leads them. Uh, The characters that it involves are Gerard, obviously, Jerry, Doc, Diane, Leland, Lucy, Gordon, the man from another place, Bob, the spirit Mike, whatever that means, Andy, Hawk, Ben, Laura, Harry, and Cooper. And it lasts through much of the first half of the series. It's in the pilot through episode two. Comes back in episode four. That's the biggest episode of uh, season one where he's they actually confront Gerard directly and find out what he knows as Gerard. Then he doesn't come back till episode eight. And then 10 through 16, the one-armed man plot is present throughout as they're hunting for him. They realize he, he had a experience in the bathroom stall and he left a needle behind. So they think... Okay, he's up to something. And then it comes up again in episode 25 when they're talking about haloperidol, the drug that Wyndham Earl is taking and saying, oh, well, that's the drug the one-armed man took. And then Firewalk With Me Missing Pieces, we see the one-armed man uh, seemingly at the all the time with Mike at the forefront. Like he's not his, his uh, quote-unquote human self in this film at any time. He's always the spirit. And he is confronting Leland, following him around, chasing him down the woods there's an implication that he has the ring with him there's been some ambiguity bit the actors talked about this in interviews like i didn't have the ring with me but the way it's edited definitely suggests that he has the ring and throws it in the car when the door opens and it's sort of the delivery of that and throughout that film we see him with the mic again you know trying this is hard because this is a storyline it's also very much focused on one character who i've discussed as the character either prior or will be, you know, in one of these reflections. So I don't just want to throw everything together, but the trajectory of the one-armed man as a plot is the idea that he's our conduit to find out what the spirit world is in the show. There's really nothing more direct because they get little clues about Bob from other people's statements of what Laura said. And Cooper has his dreams, but even in the dream, the one-armed man is kind of a central feature. And uh, then, of course, in the film, we find out the little man, the one man from another place, is basically his arm that was cut off, whatever that means. The connection I want to draw to The Return is part 17. This is one of 
the, I guess, more iconic episodes with the one-armed man in it of this series, although he's present throughout. But this is the episode where Cooper goes into that weird basement room in the Great Northern, closes the door behind him, walks through the darkness, and somehow there is Mike slash Philip Gerard, definitely in spirit form, uh, talking to him, saying, repeating the fire walk with me poem that he says in Cooper's dream back in episode two of the original series. And then there's like an electricity flash and he guides him through the room above the convenience store motel uh, courtyard into the room where Philip Jeffries is another Philip with a, I guess a J or a G, you know, similar sounding names. And he stands by his side as he is sent back to 1989. So interesting use of the character here. I have a suspicion because the way this was shot, they didn't know when or if Michael J. Anderson would be participating. It was all scripted ahead of time. The man from another place was supposed to be a part of it. And then they brought in the arm tree instead, the evolution of the arm, as they call it. But that can only do certain things without like an actor there to be, you know, doing all this. I think a lot of the Red Room material was all supposed to be the man from another place. I think they split the duties between the evolution of the arm and a Philip Gerard one-armed man uh, when they realized that they weren't going to have the actor to play the little man. So I think they expanded the one-armed man's role. That's my suspicion. And if that's the case, I'll bet you we weren't supposed to see the one-armed man until part 17 when he emerges out of the darkness saying the fire walk with me poem which would have been a hell of an entrance. Uh, I'm glad we got him in the other scenes too. He's great there, but that would have been, you know, <laughs> that would have been quite a return. So that's unfortunate in a way that that couldn't play out in that sense, if that's what they intended. This is just, by the way, totally my speculation. I've never heard anyone confirm or deny that that's the case. But once again, he's serving as a spirit guide into the ether. And I think that's the crucial role here. He's He's a sort of a more... Um, he's like a guide in the Red Room in a way he wasn't ever on the original series for much of season three. But this episode, part 17, where he's leading him through the darkness and he can't say much or do much and he's very spooky and mysterious, that is the closest to the function of the one-armed man in uh, in the original series is right there in part 17. The comparison between the One-Armed Man storyline and Part 17 was part of the January 2nd, 2021 Patreon episode. So here as well, make sure you check out all the other storyline comparisons for other Patreon episodes. Uh, I'll have that linked on the Illustrated Companion, and uh, maybe if I can squeeze it in in these show notes, you got to scroll down to the Storylines category on this particular page uh, that I'm highlighting here. Another uh, connection I drew at a certain point to uh, the season three finale was with Mad Men, the episode Lost Horizon, which was one of the final episodes and actually aired around the time that David Lynch was uh, taking a hiatus from the Twin Peaks Return Project. Showtime was trying to negotiate a contract to get him back in. And around this time this episode aired, I always wondered if he rewrote the finale based on it, because there's some striking similarities here. Um, I touch on it very briefly in the essay, so I'll, I'll read that little excerpt here. But uh, it's it's worth considering, uh, I think, at a greater length as well. I've often brought it up in Twin Peaks conversations with people, just because it, uh, it really fascinates me 
how this uh, connection works here. So here's the little uh, sections that I had uh, on that particular uh, aspect of this episode. This entry in my viewing diary for Mad Men was released on February 21st, 2022. I reviewed every episode of the show, and uh, this was when I was about ready to wrap it up, because this is, like I said, one of the last episodes of Mad Men. So obviously spoilers for Mad Men in here. So this excerpt describes a meeting that uh, Don is in where he's not paying that much attention. He sees an airplane flying across the Empire State Building and he walks out and ends up going on this crazy road trip that leads to the end of the series. So uh, here's the part that is relevant to Twin Peaks. Don happens to glimpse that stirring vision because I'd rather look out the window of the McCann Erickson conference room, packed as it is with shirt-sleeved creative directors leafing through research portfolios, than listen to Bill Phillips' Connolly Research, whose name and occupation will promptly steal in the time-honored Whitman tradition. Or is Don listening to Bill after all? The pompous consultant's monologue describes an everyman in the Midwest, maybe Wisconsin, who lives a simple, sturdy life and drinks the same beer his father drank. Don himself could never be this man, but within a day, he'll show up at one such man's door, even if Cliff Bauer, Mackenzie Aston, is not actually the person Don is looking for. Presenting himself as a representative of Miller Beer to Cliff's wife Laura, Sarah Jane Morris, claiming that Ms. Bauer won a prize for a writing contest, Don is coming full circle to the primeval state of his current millionaire status, a humble salesman at an ordinary door, with little on hand to offer other than a card, a smile, and a promise that his customer is a winner. There is also a Twin Peaks parallel, as in this moment Don is a suited man pursuing a runaway waitress to what he believes to be her home, only to be greeted by a stranger who says she lives there and bears a familiar last name, and hell, now that I think about it, a familiar first name. When Cliff does return, he sees through Don immediately, tearing off his mask as a salesman and then dismissing his more plausible claim to be a collections agent. You think you're the first man to come looking for her? Cliff asks. Not knowing any more about Diana's whereabouts than Don does, the husband tells the lover, you can't save her. Only Jesus can. You know, he'll help you too. Ask him. Now that's one of many, many, many passing references to Twin Peaks in uh, pieces that are not specifically focused on Twin Peaks on my site. And I've organized all of these in a directory. It'll be linked again wherever all of these pieces are linked, either in the show notes or the uh, Illustrated Companion, so check that out. For Twin Peaks Conversations, a podcast that I split over YouTube and my $5 a month Patreon tier, I had many discussions with guests that uh, involved Season 3, Season 3 finale specifically. I mean, I would say probably this episode or these episodes more than any other. But uh, here's a sampling of that, my conversation with uh, John Thorne, one of several conversations I've had with him over the years, in this case, uh, after he wrote his book, Ominous Whoosh. The next interlude essay is 10 is the number of completion. So what is that about? Okay, and that is near the middle of the book, though somewhat uh, in, the, in the first half, perhaps the second most or, or equally as important thesis of the book, and that is what I believe uh, Laura Palmer's new role is in The Return. And I put it after part eight because we see in part eight that she has been essentially what looks like she's been created by the firemen uh, in this other realm and, and sent to earth. And so if we look at it somewhat literally and not metaphorically, what does this mean? And and so for me, I was, you know, uh, 
intrigued by this new redefinition of Laura Palmer and and perhaps she's got a different role now than we thought of before. And so this essay is my effort to say what I think Laura Palmer is in the story. And, and just very briefly, I believe she is at least a, a representation of some Hindu belief. We may have talked about this on other podcasts, but in the Hindu theology, the, you know, the god Vishnu sends avatars to earth, and the last avatar he sends to earth is the tent, his tenth avatar, Kalki, who is sent deliberately to restart the cycle of ages, sort of bring an end to the dark age, which is evil ascendant, and restart a new age of purity and goodness, which is the golden age. And I think there is a lot of information within the text of the return to support the reading that Laura Palmer parallels that role as a the 10th avatar of some supreme being deliberately sent to earth to perform a function and that is to end the dark age and bring about a new age. And of course, as I mentioned, there are many other guests as well that I've talked to uh, over the past few years. Again, many references to uh, season three in this episode specifically, but also just all of Twin Peaks. Since we're at the end of Lost in Twin Peaks, might as well point out that, you know, many, many pieces on my site uh, discuss the series as a whole. And uh, you can check out the uh, directory of Twin Peaks Conversations to uh, see the other guests I've spoken to about this. And uh, by the way, this particular conversation was published on September 28th, 2022. And uh, continuing down the chronology of, uh, you know, different forms of coverage of uh, season three or the finale specifically, I also wrote a Twin Peaks character series entry on Carrie Page. So this whole series is covering characters ranked by screen time, moving upwards, you know, ascending the uh, the, the screen time. And uh, Carrie Page came in at number 55. And obviously she's a character very focused on this finale, so this is a good sample to provide of uh, that whole series. Here's the Impressions of Twin Peaks section for Carrie Page, uh, which incidentally this uh, whole piece was published on March 27th, 2023. First off, importantly, Carrie has never heard of Twin Peaks. She isn't even sure if the FBI agent, Cooper of course, means Washington DC or Washington State, or how far the latter is from Twin Peaks, or if it's particularly cold. This character, whose face and that flicker of recognition in final moments on screen suggest she's the most central person to the entire mythos of Twin Peaks, is, by all appearances, a complete stranger to the town. Moreover, when she finally does arrive there, the whole community looks desolate. Maybe it's just really late at night. Then again, Alice Tremont answers her door promptly, and is dressed and acts as if it's still a reasonable hour in the evening. No one else is out on the street or the sidewalk. The lights on the perpetually illuminated Double R Diner are off, and no sounds of laughter, shouting, even of television sets, escape the quiet, dark houses passed by this duo. The Twin Peaks town as seen by Carrie is desolate, empty, an impenetrable dead zone. The Twin Peaks narrative as seen by Carrie is likewise sparse, a long succession of driving shots with no music but the endless, vaguely eerie humming of the road underneath their wheels. There is at least one suggestion of violence, not seen by her directly, but obviously something she's aware of, since it's in her own house, that bloody corpse that no one wants to comment upon. 
However, the violence is past and mostly off-screen. This Twin Peaks is adjacent to all of the tumult we associate with Twin Peaks without dipping into it directly. In that sense, the town we see here and the story told about it do have something in common with the world of the previous 17 parts, 30 episodes, and feature film. An electric charge of mystery. A longing, in this case, actively frustrated rather than teased, but potent nonetheless. But as noted, this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of my work on Twin Peaks as a whole, and uh, I definitely encourage you, check out my Twin Peaks directories. There's a ton of stuff at this point. If you're listening to this, you've certainly seen it all, so uh, you can see what I have to say about it in various ways and various mediums, various aspects of it, and so forth. So definitely make sure you check out uh, the Twin Peaks directory on my site, lostinthemovies.com. So that obviously overlaps with the recent work I highlighted in the uh, first episode of this week on part 17 and 18, uh, because all of the Twin Peaks character series entries so far have gone up uh, since the previous uh, Lost in Twin Peaks episode that I released. But uh, definitely make sure that you check out the other characters in that series as well. Uh, Some of them relate directly to season three uh, finale and... Others aren't involved with it at all, but, uh, you know, most of them aren't involved with it at all since there's only, I think, seven or eight characters in Part 18 in particular. But, uh, yeah, that that link will be uh, available wherever all these other ones are. And finally, I just want to say upcoming Journey Through Twin Peaks video essays are going to focus extensively on the finale as well because uh, this uh, part six of the Journey Through Twin Peaks videos that I started in 2014, definitely my most popular work on Twin Peaks, um, quite probably what brought you here to this podcast. Uh, They're going to be divided up by storyline rather than by episode, so they're going to focus on like Vegas, Mr. C, the town, and all that. And uh, certainly they will deal extensively with uh, the season three finale at various points. So stay tuned for that. And uh, that is it for the archive. And that is it for this episode. Uh, Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. And keep in mind, if you're listening to this in 2023, as I said, season two has yet to be released. So look for that on this feed or on my site, lostinthemovies.com. If you're listening to this after the fact and the season two episodes are on the feed, you'll know if you're listening to this in the future, if that happened or not. They've all been recorded. I just need to re-edit the material and stuff. Either way, we've covered now all of season three. I hope you enjoyed that process. Uh, Usually we end these episodes by leading right into the next one with the first minute of the upcoming Twin Peaks. But as of now, we don't have that unless, uh, you know, Unrecorded Night is hidden away somewhere in Lynch's... uh, Uh, library so (laughs) that was the project of course that some people thought might be more twin peaks or some sort of spin-off or alternate universe twin peaks but he didn't get to finish it netflix pulled the plug on the project and now we all wait to see if there will be more but uh i'll let the future decide that for now thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this very in-depth coverage of uh twin peaks and uh see you on the other side (laughs) 